Moybridge approaches his animals with an intent to capture. What he wants to seize is really not animals as discrete individuals and in themselves and for themselves, but really their movement. What he pursues are an invisible economy of forces that is really shared by all animals. So for him, the comprehension of animals is really less a function of space, uh, like it is for Audubon, who goes out in nature to take animals and bring them back to culture, but rather a function of time. Capture is a book that reveals how the drive to contain and record disappearing animals was a central feature and organizing pursuit of the 19th century U.S. cultural canon. In a conversation that ranges from references to Muybridge and Audubon, Poe and Hawthorne, Whitman and Thoreau, environmental humanities and biopolitics, presentation and representation, capture and captivity, Antoine Tresnel, author of Capture, joins Michelle Neely, author of Against Sustainability, in a lively and rigorous discussion. Tresnell is Assistant Professor of English and Comparative Literature at the University of Michigan. Neely is Associate Professor of English at Connecticut College. This conversation was recorded in March 2021. Okay, well, I'm really excited to get to talk about Capture. Me too. <laughs> I absolutely loved your book, as I've already told you. So, so to begin at the beginning, you theorize the rise of what you call the age of capture during the 19th century. You're tracing this shift in representation um, from Audubon to Moybridge, from hunting to capture. So I'm wondering if you could just explain a little bit about what you're charting with that shift. Yeah, sure. So when I, when I started thinking about the place that animals occupy in the landscape of 19th century America, I my question was what it meant to study animals or even to just represent animals at the very moment when animals were receding from everyday view like never before so so my question was quite you know simply how do you represent something that is in the process of disappearing uh how do you represent animals at the historical moment when animals were being hunted and slaughtered on a completely unprecedented scale when natural habitats were being violently reconfigured to fit settler colonial economic regimes, um, but also when species extinction was no longer just a, an abstract scientific theory, but had become an undisputable empirical reality. And here I'm thinking, for instance, of, of two emblematic uh, you know, animals, for instance, emblematic of, of the United States, the passenger pigeon and the bison, both of which occupy an important place in my book because they uh, were thought at the beginning of the century to be so numerous um, as to be inexhaustible, but both were hunted uh, respectively into extinction and near extinction in just the space of a few decades. So um, my, my question was really to try to figure out a way to account for that particular history of the systemic disappearance of animals from the point of view of representation. And here immediately, I thought you have a little bit of a problem. Uh, how do you represent something uh, that does not have a fixed presence, right? If representation is the representation of something. So my, my thesis was that what you need is new apparatuses, new protocols, new techniques for um, apprehending that uh, fugitive reality, the animal 
in the moment of its disappearance. My general argument is that the centuries uh, new kind of uh, drive, you know, interest in containing and archiving animals um, introduced a, a new visual regime. This is what I call capture, in which animals are rendered both known in advance and yet utterly unknowable. So there's, you know, a kind of a defining paradox in my conception of capture. And under the new uh, regime of vision that I call capture, uh, animals simultaneously appear readily available via technologies of knowledge and control, and yet at the same time, infinitely distant, uh, essentially fugitive, always on the verge of extinction or disappearance, etc. What I try to do is, is uh, theorize the, uh, the prototyping of this new regime of capture in new uh, protocols of scientific inquiry, in new uh, visual experimentations, but also um, in, in really the, the material biopolitical management of animals uh, as it was being you know, uh, perfected, but also contested, and, and how this also manifests in some of the centuries most uh, iconic works. So you've already mentioned Audubon and Moy Bridge, uh, but I'm also thinking about um, you know, authors like James Fenmore Cooper, Edgar Poe, uh, Nathaniel Hawthorne. One thing that you also briefly mentioned is that I think about the, the shift from the hunt to capture. And here I should say that uh, what I try to do when I try to, to trace the advent of what I call capture is use the hunt as a uh, particular paradigm that helps us understand how a certain way of apprehending animals, a certain form of animal pursuit, you know, was transformed into something else over the course of the century. What, what I do is basically try to consider what happens to the hunt, both as a material practice, but also as a cultural trope over the course of the century. And by tracing how it uh, itself tends to either be promoted you know, if we think culturally how the hunt becomes really this sort of a perfect trope for representing, you know, uh, the American uh, man, very much, you know, a masculine figure. Uh, the hunt had this kind of role in promulgating this uh, colonial agenda that, that naturalized the conversion of indigenous subsistence habitats uh, into, you know, things that were ready for the taking. Uh, all the while presenting uh, this kind of manly pursuit as some kind of uh, archaic figure, you know, that was destined to disappear. So, and, and here we can think of how this uh, fed into the trope of the vanishing American, and and that's something that's discussed by indigenous scholars like Gerald Disner, etc. What I try to show basically is that at stake in the disappearance of the hunt. Uh, this weird disappearance that also uh, a kind of um, uh, maintenance of this particular activity is also uh, a kind of profound epistemological and aesthetic shift in the perception of animals. The explanatory power of capture is so, so evident in the book, and it, it just came through so clearly in, in, um, in what you just said. Um, I, I mean, the, the stakes to biopolitics, the stakes for representation are so clear and powerful. But even just at the level of the visual and textual readings, I mean, when I looked at the table of contents, one of my first reactions was um, this kind of delight that you were working with these 19th century texts that center animals in what are to me these weird and wonderful ways, but that I've always found the kind of critical attention that some of these texts get. 
a bit dissatisfying. Um, so Hawthorne's The Marble Fawn, uh, Cooper's The Prairie are, are two examples of, of texts where I feel like the, the, the mode of accounting for um, animality in this text has never felt fully satisfying to me before your book. But, but sort of capture the book and the concept just totally opens up both of those novels um, and then invites all of these fascinating points of comparison between them, um, you know, how visuality works in each, how taxonomy features in each. Um, I mean, th- those are just two kind of quick examples of the really original readings that the, that the book offers. Um, thinking about all of this made me wonder just how you came to capture as a concept you know, was there a feeling of dissatisfaction that you had with a particular theoretical narrative? Was there something else that pr- provoked you in this direction? Hmm. Thank, thanks so much for the question. And thanks also for being uh, such a, a, a generous reader. I'm, I'm really happy to hear that that's how you feel about I wouldn't say that there was necessarily a feeling of dissatisfaction, but I can say that I came to these texts with I think it would maybe a different question, precisely as I was saying before, because I was trying to think about almost a new species of animal uh, as something that was in the process of disappearing. The, the origin story of this project is really to be found in, uh, like, you know, many people in animal studies uh, reading Derrida's The Animal That Therefore I Am. So I, you know, was fascinated by his understanding description of this concept, the animal, uh, as this very weird chimerical being uh, that has this kind of spectral and yet completely enduring, you know, presence in our texts, in our philosophy, in uh, Western representation. And, And for those who are not familiar, you know, basically Derrida calls uh, the animal the, he calls it a catch-all concept uh, and something that seems to be everywhere present, almost infrastructurally, as something that supports uh, Western liberal discourses, and yet consistently sacrificed. Uh, and, and he basically says that it's it's uh, doomed to what he calls an interminable survival, right? In both our yeah our texts, but also I think uh, he's thinking about them materially. And my interest when I uh, read Derrida was to try to basically periodize the emergence of this particular figure, this weird figure that the animal is. This is something that Nicole Shukin has already, um, you know, pointed out in her own reading of Derrida, uh, which is this moment where Derrida seems to date, uh, you know, or periodize the appearance of the animal, the emergence of this uh, of this figure somewhere around 200 years ago. And um, Shukin is, you know, saying like, that's really interesting because it's also uh, the beginning of, um, you know, it, it, it sort of fits uh, Foucauldian periodization of the emergence of what he calls biopolitics, but also what, um, you know, she and other people have called, uh, Shukin and other people have called biocapitalism. So, there seemed to be really this uh, interesting way of making Derrida's concept resonate with a uh, material, political, economic, but also, I think, aesthetic, you know, history that, you know, is something that I think uh, his text could open up that, but that he was not doing himself. So I, I went 
to what I knew, which is 19th century American, you know, literature and, and culture and visual culture. And I sort of uh, asked myself, could this particular lens uh, that Derrida offers us be a productive one to read some of the texts that you've mentioned? And I did find that there was really this uh, fascinating recurrence of these figures, these animal figures that are both there and not there, you know, in the text that you've mentioned, uh, Hawthorne's The Marble Fawn, but also Cooper's The Prairie. Um, animals have these really uh, interesting role that they play in the economy of, of the different stories, but also their their representation is very much a problem for these authors. And so I went a little bit, you know, from the theory down to the text, but really I tried to see if this particular theory had a bearing on these texts. And the answer for me is yes, but there is very much uh, a lot of work to be done to uh, make this particular, you know, concept that was also forged in a particular history, which for Derrida is very much the history of uh, continental philosophy and, and Western thought, how it could be made to speak to a very different context, which is the settler colonial uh, context of uh, 19th century America. One of the things that I um, really loved about the book uh, is that in addition to the um, the more kind of obvious way that the chapters are ordered and structured at the level of um, developing the argument that we've been talking about, the argument of capture, there are also these subtle threads and through lines that are running through all of the chapters um, that make for these really surprising moments in the argument and these connections these across the chapters. Um, and so one of these would be the grid, the way that the, the grid appears in different guises in different chapters. Um, so Audubon's grid is distinct from yet related to Cooper's grid or Poe's grid or Moybridge's. Um, so I was wondering if you could talk about just how the grid features in your argument. Yes, thanks for picking that up, because I was fascinated by grids when I was reading this. Uh, and there were many more grids at some point in the writing of this manuscript. And, and I had to sort of play it down a little bit because uh, it, it was not necessarily the main focus of, of the book. Uh, grids are everywhere in 19th century uh, U.S. culture. And this is something that Rebecca Solnit already has you know, pointed out in uh, her book on Moybridge, Rivers of Shadow. It's really fascinating you know um comment that she's making because she's uh here doing a little bit of what i'm trying to do which is tie you know the the grid of the great land land ordinance that made it possible for the us to colonize uh, uh gigantic spaces without even having been there yet and i found that there was something really fascinating about this particular tool, this particular apparatus uh, that's the grid here was as uh, a, a tool of what I call land speculation as something that helps you preemptively, you know, uh, really capture a territory without even having been there yet, right, physically. Uh, that particular uh, omnipresence of the grid also has, you know, a bearing on how the U.S., thought about itself as as being extremely rational it's the cartesian you know grid but also egalitarian it seems to promise the same thing to everyone uh, with obviously uh, covering the the violence of the you know uh, uh, removal uh, of the native americans that was actually necessary for settlers to go and and inhabit these different spaces but uh, it really is um, this sort of uh, governmental uh, as well as 
you know, and that's Rebecca Solnit, mental logic that seemed to be governing uh, this uh, this this century. And as I was, you know, looking at these different figures or these different uh, texts or images, I also saw grids, you know, everywhere, and I saw them sometimes as disappearing behind the images. So that's, for instance, with Audubon, who used uh, grids and basically uh, squares behind the subjects, the birds that he would be painting, and then he would cover up, you know, these grids with, you know, with painted landscapes, to Moorbridge, who at the end of the century actually made the grid very apparent. And when you look at his uh, work on animal locomotion, what's really interesting is that the landscape that Audubon was putting over his grid here has completely disappeared. So it seems as if we have uh, both continuity, but also a difference in how that particular way of apprehending animals, the grid, uh, was used uh, So as, as a particular technology. I, I mentioned Audubon and Moybridge because I think they are very good examples of what I'm trying to argue uh, with the book here. Uh, they both have very different ways of approaching their animals, uh, even though they also both seem to partake in the same kind of uh, archival epistemophilia. They both uh, have these gigantic works that they work on. Um, Audubon's is The Birds of America that he publishes in the first half of the uh, the 19th century, uh, so between 1827 and 1838, and in which he tries to really collect all of the feathered fauna of, of the U.S. And at the end, we have Moybridge, who publishes uh, his massive animal locomotion. So again, a lot of animal pictures. So I think it's 1887. And there seems to be something really similar here. The sheer size of their enterprise, the sheer ambition of these two uh, also freshly uh, uh, emigrated European men who come to the U.S. to kind of collect, you know, everything. But as as I was saying before, you know, their animals are quite different, right? And that actually is a good way of also trying to understand what I mean by the shift from uh, the hunt regime to the capture regime. Audubon famously was an avid hunter and hunting was uh, very much continuous with his painting practice. So he would uh, kill, you know, shoot most of the birds that he would be painting. And uh, on the other hand, uh, Moybridge would be working with subjects, animal subjects that had to be alive because what he was interested in was their motion, locomotion, and uh, also that were already captive. So he was working with, uh, for instance, the uh, Philadelphia Zoo or with you know, horses, already domesticated animals. And and really what struck me was that on the one hand, Audubon perceives his specimens really with the eyes of a hunter. His birds are out there, you know, in the wild. Uh, he kills them in order to draw them. He focuses uh, first on their external appearance. And he also presumes animals to be really knowable in terms of their taxonomic identity, which for him is like visible uh, to the human eye. In contrast, Moybridge approaches his animals with a different intent, with an intent to capture. What he wants to seize is really not animals as discrete individuals and in themselves and for themselves, but really their movement. What he pursues are an invisible economy of forces that is really shared by all animals. So for him, 
the comprehension of animals is really less a function of space, uh, like it is for uh, um, Audubon, who goes out in nature to take animals and bring them back to culture, but rather a function of time. Uh, so in Moybridge, what I try to show is that space has become subordinated to an imminent uh, principle of transformation and transience, right? So animals are really apprehended as they pass, in passing. And here there's a little bit of a play on words on the passing also as animals really being understood as elusive, fugitive, but also on the verge of uh, of disappearing, right? Uh, kind of doomed to not be there. And so there is almost this kind of frenzy to try to record something that he knows is not going to be there for uh, very, very long. In what you were saying, I was thinking a lot about the adaptability of the technique that, or of the technology that, that you were outlining. And, um, and that also kind of connects with this other thread that I noticed, which was the way that you were tracing the adaptation of these hunting techniques into the kind of seemingly, but you're arguing not actually less violent objectives of capture. I'm thinking of the the strange and amazing gun camera, um, which uh, which comes up early in the introduction. I mean, even just which is exactly what it sounds like for people who can't see the image. It's it is a gun camera, um, and um, and then of course there's this Moorbridge's tripwire system. Um, for me, I was I was so um, taken with the the link between um, that you draw between Poe's urban detectives, um, you know Dupont's famous logical technique, and then the the tracking work of the hunter, how the how the one feeds into the other. I mean, that Poe chapter is just like so stunning. <laughs> oh, sorry, <laughs> I just yeah, I, it's it it blew me away completely. Um, I, I guess I'm wondering if you could talk about how characterizing the detective as a hunter kind of um, changes our perception, um, not just of the murders in the room morgue, not just of the genre of detective fiction. I mean, that would be enough. But, but you know, your argument is so much bigger than that, right? Like the function of animality in the modern imaginary, um, uh, you know, crime and criminality. I mean, it just it touches on so many things. I'm wondering if you could talk a little bit about that Poe chapter. Yeah, I, I'm going to try to do my best, but uh, thanks for for you know also picking up on on that. Really, what I'm I'm trying to argue is uh, not simply a, a disappearance of the hunt, but as you're saying, like more of a kind of a, a folding in of the hunt in in something else, right? In something uh, that also appears to be less violent because it 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 has uh, subsumed the hunt under something you know uh, different. Uh, the gun camera, if I can just come back to, to this very quickly before oh, talking about the Poe, yeah, is, is this really fascinating invention that some guy um, at the end of the 19th century, you know, uh, Benjamin Kilburn invented uh, because he wanted to have this this kind of like portable device that would enable him to continue hunting while knowing that hunting was very much a problem, you know, when people were becoming more and more aware that uh, it was actually a, a cause of, you know, extinction, that extinction could be man-made. And, and really, this is not something that at the beginning of the century people ever, you know, were concerned with because the very concept of species extinction was not yet even, you know, a thing, right, or a barely starting to be a thing. Uh, it, it, it really starts with um, the French scientist uh, Georges Cuvier, who really is the first one to really formalize uh, 
extinction. But but very much there was this sense that how do I continue doing what I love, which is shoot things, without really inflicting injury to uh, the objects that I so want to have. And and what I love is not just the object itself, which is already such a weird thing. It really is this accordion-like camera on a gun, you know. Uh, so the object is, itself is very weird, but also the really bizarre, uh, you know, ad uh, that says to its, you know, um, I, I think we can assume white male audience, it's okay, you can go and continue, you know, hunting, you can do this thing that you so much love, uh, and, and you can do it without being cruel. So I try to read, you know, the emergence of this new form of hunting uh, that pretends to, you know, not do any kind of violence to its uh, object or subject um, along, you know, the lines of what uh, Foucault sees as the rise of a new form of power, which equals pastoral power. And this pastoral power would be, you know, much less obviously, you know, violent. Um, it is very much, you know, violent, but instead of, you know, killing, putting to death, it more lets die is the formulation that that uh, Foucault has. So I was interested in in how uh, a form of power uh, and a form of a technique also of of knowing and controlling emerges in that particular moment that appears to be much less immediately violent, uh, and yet is very much the continuation of hunting by other means. So Poe is really fascinating because, as we know, he's the inventor uh, of a new genre, or actually several new genres. Uh, I say that, and I can already hear people say, like, well, there are predecessors to, you know, Poe for thinking about the invention of the, of the um, you know, crime fiction or detective fiction. Uh, and I, I, I'm aware that there are precursors, but we could, I think, easily agree that he's uh, very much associated with that kind of new form that the detective story is. I wanted to see who the detective was. It, it all started with this interesting insight that Walter Benjamin has in the Arcades Project that essentially Poe's detective is a hunter in a different context, in a different setting. And he actually links uh, Dupin directly to Nadi Bumpo and to Cooper's hunter. Uh, but, you know, he basically... Uh, shows us that 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 something has happened, and what's happened is that the context, the background, uh, is different. So I, you know, read very much the murders in a remorgue uh, with an eye to try to see, you know, who the detective was and how he was described uh, by Poe. And what is really fascinating, and that's something that um, I had already written about a little bit with my friend Tongam. Ravindranathan, uh, in a in a short book that was published in France a few years ago, what's really fascinating is that Poe actually cryptically describes uh, the detective as a hunter. He tells us repeatedly that uh, the detective is the one who is uh, never losing the scent of the murderer uh, or or the per perpetrator uh, of you know the murders in the remorgue, and this perpetrator is nowhere to be found by the police. So the police who here are sort of representatives of kind of Cartesian logic, just are completely confounded when they try to solve the, the murders in the remorgue. 
because they have expectations and their expectation, Dupin tells us, is that their suspect has to be a human. Uh, they, you know, try to understand what this particular suspect could have said, but Dupin, you know, will realize that um, it actually could not have said anything because it doesn't speak uh, or what the motive was. But Dupin realizes that there couldn't have been a rational motive behind the murders because it was not a rational being uh, that had committed this um, this murder. Uh, essentially, what Dupin shows is that there was no murders in the Rue Morgue. There was just, you know, uh, some creature inflicting death to other creatures. And what is really fascinating is that Dupin has so often been read as this representative of of rationality, this hyper-rational being, which he is to a degree, but uh, there is always, you know, behind his acumen, actually the sagacity of a hunter, of uh, this particular figure that complements or supplements his very logical knowledge with uh, the instinct and the techniques of someone who is able to smell the scent of his prey, essentially. And, and that has really fascinating bearings on what it means to go after, you know, or to criminalize someone. And um, the murders in the remark also has often been read as a very interesting allegory of Black criminality, um, because the animal, uh, the orangutan, who is the perpetrator, is portrayed in, in racist terms, but also is very much, you know, resonating with uh, racist discourses at the time that we're animalizing uh, racialized people. And it's interesting to see how this uh, goes hand in hand with also an animalization. But this animalization is not just a dehumanizing. Uh, it's more, there, there's no simple binary with Dupin between uh, human and animal. Rather, there's a kind of gradation, right? And what I try to show is that this very much works with new ways of understanding how you know racial hierarchies work at the time and and also with new forms of control that emerge you know in the moment so uh, so yeah that that's very much I think how I try to think about the function of animality uh, in the in the modern imaginary as you were saying you know in um, in this particular story. I wanted to ask you also about about Moby Dick. It, um, I mean, in some ways, it's like the animal novel, right, of the nineteenth century, <laughs> yes. um, and it it's not a subject of one of the chapters, although it gets you know it's something that you think about substantially in a, a number of places in the book, beginning with the introduction. But I'm I'm wondering how how Moby Dick helped you think about capture or or just what you know if you could talk about some of the ways that you see capture evidenced in in Moby Dick yeah it's also the quintessential 19th century American novel for so many people so there were so many reasons to study Moby Dick and I think I found them a little daunting hence I did not really devote you know a chapter or maybe for fear of having to have one book just about Moby Dick I I just let it crop up every every now and then in the book, uh, you know, mostly in the introduction. But I think there's several moments where the the whale kind of like reemerges and then uh, is, is submerged. <laughs> yeah, exactly surfaces. But I I really 
was thinking about this text the whole time as I was writing on it. Uh, uh, I was writing the the the, the book um, because I do think uh, that Melville is very very attuned to what's happening to animals, you know, at the time, but also to the industries and and the techniques that surround these animals, uh, as well as the epistemologies, right? The the ways of knowing them also um, were in the process of being transformed. And, and I think really Melville was very, very attentive to that. So in the introduction, I just have a very short reading of Moby Dick, and, and that really uh, hinges around his title and the use of the, of the or in uh, Moby Dick or the whale, because I felt that there was a tension there, a tension between the individual animal or uh, the species, right? Uh, Moby Dick, the single white whale, after which Ahab is, or the whale as this kind of uh, already uh, generalized, massified uh, animal, the animal, maybe as opposed to a singular animal. And I attached the first Moby Dick to Ahab, who for me um, epitomizes the logic of the hunt that is very interested in pursuing the single animal that in that case also can be granted a name. And on the other hand, I paired Ahab or contrasted his pursuit to um, another pair of hunters who we are told no longer hunt, who are Peleg and Bildad. So Peleg and Bildad are these former whale hunters who now no longer do the work, but outsource it to other people. So they very much embody uh, kind of like capitalist, you know, uh, figures that let others, you know, do the work. But they also, interestingly, work for shareholders. So they're not even their own people in a way, right? Uh, and they are not interested in the single animal. In fact, that is more of an impediment to their enterprise because what they're interested in is accumulating as much whale mass as possible. And so I think that here, the whale is very much what they're after. And in their pursuit, which, you know, knows no end because you can always accumulate and you know that well, because that's also what you discuss in, in your book, uh, it, they very much represent still a form of hunting, but a hunting that sort of disavows those that it employs in order to do its work. And, and that's where I see uh, a form of a subsumption of the work done by Ahab, but mostly by his crew. Uh, and therefore, you know, all these people working, you know, under Ahab uh, in, in all their, you know, diversity uh, as as really being kind of uh, taken up by a different kind of logic, which is this uh, capitalist logic of ceaseless, endless uh, accumulation that that I call capture. Sorry, I needed to finish yeah, that sentence. Yeah. No, I was, for some, when you were talking, I was kind of picturing to the, um, the form that the animal comes back to sh- I mean in Moby Dick the animal does not come back to shore but um, in theory you know the the sort of what you were saying um, at the beginning about the kind of spectral nature of the animal like the the, the sort of um, transformation of the whale into these like casks of oil um, sort of you know down in the hold I don't know anyway I was just thinking about that yeah which yeah you're absolutely right which also I think makes it uh, ever present but uh uh, also disappeared right in, in this uh, or present in this non-visible way uh, 
in our in the very structure you know of our of our lives right and right which melville thinks about right in the whale that the, the whale is a dish he's like your your candles your your pens like exactly the objects the material objects of your lives right absolutely yes um i wanted to ask you about the about the end um where the book ends I really loved that this, okay, on the one hand, this is a book that's about the dire consequences of the rise of capture. Um, but I loved that you ended on this note of, um, to quote you, you know, trying to glimpse the ethical imperative that emerges out of this devastation. Um, and, and so I wondered if you could just talk about where you see room for, for ethical action or, or response under capture and also why it was important to you to end the book on that note. It's it's something that I wish I had developed more, but I try in every chapter and and you know more importantly toward the end to make space for thinking about what capture also makes possible. Uh, I'm very aware that what I'm I'm tracing is a, a a master narrative really in the in the most literal sense and therefore something that is indeed a story of devastation of mass extinction of disappearance uh, so I do not want to romanticize that history at the same time I also am aware that resistance is also often you know forged uh, within the terms of uh, dominant discourses and strategies I also think that what we're witnessing with capture is not just, you know, the the, the capture of the world, but very much a a, a transformation, an epistemic shift that um, also allows for a different way of interacting with animals. And one thing, you know, maybe one way of you know responding, which might be also a cop out, but one way of responding to your to your question, I often think of the the role that a thinker like Jeremy Bentham plays in in contemporary theory. On the one hand, I think we all associate Bentham with the Panopticon and with uh, what uh, Foucault, you know, has done with him, and and so he becomes the the architect of our modern surveillance society. Very much not a very happy, you know, uh, 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 role to to play for Bentham, but interestingly, in animal studies, he also has this sort of uh, very uh, important foundational role as someone who, as Derrida says in the animal that therefore I am, changed the entire question of the animal, uh, and and so famously Bentham asked that maybe the question we should ask is not can they think or can they reason, but can they suffer? Derrida does this, you know, beautiful reading of this. Can they suffer? Which, uh, in in French, is uh, using the uh, the verb pouvoir, which is is the modal for can. I'm not going to do an entire reading of that, but I just want to say that he he sees in in the way in which uh, Bentham asks this particular question, he sees the a transformation of the field and really the possibility of asking different questions and asking questions around what it means to ask whether someone or something can suffer has this particular power which for him is also a power of the powerless a power of the one who you know is uh, passive or yeah suffering so i do think that from the very same you know, crucible in a way, we have different things, you know, and I was trying to do justice to to them, uh, both the story of, of devastation and at the same time, the uh, ethical possibilities that emerge out of that very uh, story. 
I would, uh, I would love to talk to you about Bentham sometime. Not, not, this is not the time, but I, um, I'm so fascinated by that. Um, can they suffer passage? Um, because he says Mm -hmm. a lot of other really interesting things in that passage that no one ever talks about. Like if the being eaten were all, you know, we, we can eat such of them as we, as we please. Anyway. Okay. What I actually want to ask you, um, (laughs) is something just a little more open-ended. I would say that, that the book or you have a kind of like genius for the paradigmatic example, right? There are so many moments. I mean, the gun camera was just like the first example, you know, I don't know, two pages in where I went, oh my gosh, he must have been so excited when he found this. Um, it, it, just, <laughs> I, I was. it illustrates the, the argument so perfectly, right? Like it's so on the nose, but there were so many moments like that. Um, and so I'm wondering if you have a favorite moment. Was there was there a part of the book that was especially kind of exciting to write or, or a moment in the research that, that just was like, yes, this is coming together or, or even just something that, you know, you felt provoked by or that shifted your own thinking about um, kind of animality? Yeah, there, there were really, I mean, I think, as you know, everyone who's, you know, uh, gone through this long project, you have really moments of despair <laughs> where you're like, am I making any <laughs> sense? Is that thing really like uh, cohering into something? And then also these magical moments where things seem to actually uh, come together really magically. So the the, the gun camera was one such examples, um, and and they seem sometimes like they actually are the origin of the project because they work so well. But you know they often or sometimes really come uh, belatedly and and make things work in a particular way. Really, I, I should think more about it but off the top of my head i would say maybe two things you know um i was really excited about the first was to try to think of michel foucault because i very much use the biopolitics as a frame for thinking about the animal question so trying to think about how foucault himself can help us you know think of that and and really trying to read um the order of things as opposed to maybe the the foucault of reference for people who do biopolitics which is you know later but going back to this early thing and try to see that that animals really are very much present, you know, in, in a very weird way in, in what he says about the transition from uh, natural history to biology. Uh, and, and that's, again, you know, that, that idea that there is uh, something maybe positive, however flimsily, you know, positive. He pays attention to the new powers he says that animals gain in the 19th century. So that was really kind of an intriguing uh, moment to me that I felt really drawn to and and wanted to, you know, kind of unpack. And I think in terms of fines, you know, I, I was really fascinated by Hawthorne's The Marble Fawn. I had already written a book on Hawthorne. And, and for those who don't know, there's this weird, elusive character of uh, a fawn who might or might not have pointy ears. That would be the, <laughs> the, 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 the way in which his companions could determine whether he is a human or an animal. And I, as I was reading Darwin's uh, The Descent of Man, the very first example that Darwin uses is pointy ears to talk about, you know, the... Uh, the possible ancestry, and it was written ten years after after Hawthorne's book, so it it really was you know there's no question of influence, but more this kind of like weird moment of of coincidence that I I was really fascinated by. So I I was really curious you know how that could be read you know um, 
these are moments that were particularly interesting and 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 fun to think about and write about. That's great. That Darwin, yeah, that Darwin moment is amazing. I also wanted to ask you how you think about the relationship between your argument um, in capture and uh, the environmental humanities. I mean, I, you know, I came away from this book feeling like this should be required reading for anyone in the field of EH, right? It's, it's so, again, as I've already said, the, just the, the explanatory power of capture is so evident. Um, but, but then there's sometimes this, I don't want to say rift, but it, the, the, it feels as if the two fields don't always talk to each other. So I'm, I'm just wondering how you think about the relationship of capture to the kind of work that's being done or the conversations that are happening in um, the environmental humanities. Well, I mean, I, I think that I should ask you to answer this question uh, because we first met at an animal studies panel at a conference, right? Yeah. Uh, and so we were both working on animal studies uh, later. But then when I, I read your book last summer, uh, Against Sustainability, uh, which is so brilliant, and I've, I've recommended it to many uh, people already, it very much still talks about non-human animals, human-animal relations, issues like extinction that are not specifically uh, about animals, but you know very much so. Uh, it is very much framed as an intervention in environmental humanities, right? Um, so, so maybe I should ask you to uh, think because I think you've probably thought more about this question, like uh, how you yourself made the transition from animal studies to environmental humanities, if if that's the right word or uh, how you see these two fields maybe dialoguing or, or not, right? I'm, I'm curious to hear your thoughts on that. One of the reasons that I found Capture so compelling was that there's this, I think it's Ursula Heise talks about how there's this uncomfortable relationship between um, activists who do animal rights work and activists who work on behalf of animals um, in the environmental movement, because animal rights activists are are advocating on uh, at the level of like individual animals or animals who are understood as distinct individuals, um, whereas you know environmentalists are advocating at you know the level of species, right? Um, and so often then they're they're willing to make different choices, um, or they they see the ethical imperative as playing out quite differently. There has to be a way to sort of like talk across these um, these registers, right? And to think across these registers. And I think you know, capture felt like a way to kind of um, think across some of these registers. Um, and I think there are moments in in my project where I, where I was also trying to think across these registers. Or, or I mean, one of the things that Moby Dick does occasionally is think across those registers. I think, or at least give us an invitation to sort of recognize these different registers. Yeah, I, I would completely agree that I think that movie that is so fascinating, I think because it, it it holds different lines of possibility, you know, it holds them throughout the narrative, uh, sometimes more or less, but it, it makes it possible to think them as not necessarily canceling one another, but as maybe surviving, you know, alongside each other, sometimes being entangled, sometimes being more distant. But uh, yeah, you're, you're you're completely right. I think about this tension in the two fields and the ways in which maybe there's also a value in sometimes thinking about the individual animal without subsuming it under the register of the species. So maybe it's also a question of pragmatic uh, use, which you know is I think a great moment for us to start talking more about 
your book because you're very much you know interested in in these questions and i think you very much have this interest in in ethics and in in news and in uh, what we can do and also what we can do with literature so maybe i can start by saying that one of the things that really struck me the most when i i first read your book was the brilliant simplicity of your thesis i mean it, and you say it immediately so it's, it's it's we've not just inherited problems from the 19th century most famously maybe the damages caused by the industrial revolution or you know many other things but we've also inherited problematic solutions like recycling, preservation, zero waste uh, practices, all of which partake in the in the larger logic of sustainability, which uh, you say is often uncritically adopted in environmental discourses today. So when I say it's a simple thesis, I do not mean to say that it's obvious because it's not at all, and that's what your book is about. Uh, it's it's very counterintuitive. So so maybe you can uh, say a few words about why ostensibly uncontroversial practices like recycling and preservation are are problematic? I think I might distinguish a little bit between like practices and paradigms in my answer, because some of the practices of these things on balance have maybe been helpful or at least sort of could in theory. But as paradigms, I see them to be blunt as environmental fantasies that are just totally complicit in the problems that they supposedly address um, because they're they're ultimately involved in sustaining the systems that are causing these problems in the first place, right? Um, so, you know, recycling, it, it makes unlimited consumer appetite seem harmless. It, it promises that you know, the earth or the recycling industry can just absorb endless amounts of our waste and make it pure and, and useful again. And, you know, Whitman in the book is my kind of poetic prophet of this, right? He's the, he's the poet of compost. Um, but then, you know, this material recycling is the twin of omnivorous appetite in his poetic environment. Um, there's this great moment in this compost that people who've tried to think about Whitman as a kind of environmental poet always turn to where um, he gets kind of nervous that maybe the earth actually can't absorb all of our waste and um, what he refers to as our sour dead. Um, but, th- but then it's just, it's almost immediately that, that moment of nervousness, that intuition um, that there, that maybe there's some limit to what we can consume is, is dismissed through the celebration of the magic of material recycling, the magic of compost. Um, and so, you know, ultimately consumption without limit is just totally exonerated. He's in conversation in the chapter with the, the 20th century poet Lucille Clifton, who I read as just totally self-consciously rewriting many aspects of Whitman, but this aspect in particular. I mean, for, for Clifton, there's no consequence-free consumption. There's just, there's always consequences, um, you know, for, for generations, um, for, for always, right? So that means there are always limits. But um, of course, Whitman is, is the one who captures our contemporary zeitgeist, right? Um, and I, I guess in the, in the larger sense, what I'm arguing is that these paradigms are, you know, they're responding to the particulars of this anthropogenic environmental damage without actually addressing the root causes, right? And so they, these paradigms maintain continuity with the sources of our environmental problems. So, you know, the, the big systems, capitalism's growth imperatives, settler colonial extractivism, all that, all that good stuff. Um, they're, they're continuous with them. They don't interrupt them. They don't resist them. And so they're perpetuating the problems to which they apparently respond. That's so 
interesting and fascinating to think about how, yeah, certain logics uh, can accommodate harmful logics without seeming so harmful themselves. So I, I really find that really fascinating. And and, and uh, I'll have a question, I think, about Whitman after, because it's obviously really interesting to think of him as, and you've, you've, you've distinguished between practices and paradigms, which I think is so helpful also to think about um, exemplarity, uh, you know, uh, uh, choosing, uh, we've chosen, chosen, you know, uh, Whitman as, as the kind of prophet you said, uh, for a, a certain epoch. And, and so I, I'll have, yeah, questions about what exactly that means, you know, to also the field of, of literary history or, 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 uh, you know, literary criticism, because that's really fascinating. But, but first, so if being against sustainability um, is, is counterintuitive, it's, it's both because sustainability is uh, highly compatible with settler capitalism, but also you're showing because it's deeply inscribed in the dominant uh, U.S. cultural imaginary. This is why you also you, you look at how 19th century texts have uh, contributed to our valorization of certain practices or paradigms, I should say, by selling us what you call pastoral fantasies. Um, so I think you've already given a little bit of an example of what one such pastoral fantasies with Whitman. But can you say a little bit more and, and maybe give another example? Sure. Yeah. I mean, I'm, I'm using pastoral in the in the um, in the book in the Raymond Williams sense of like not just an idealized version of life in the middle landscape, but also a version of that 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 always exists somewhere in the in the past. Right. It's um, Williams points out that the golden age is always somehow a generation or two earlier, no matter when you're looking. Right. Whether it's hmm. like the 20th century or ancient Rome, it's I think he calls it like an escalator into the past. Right. Um, so the pastoral as a sort of nostalgic, ahistorical fantasy. It's funny how how books come together. I mean, I had the chapters before I had, in some ways, the um, the frame, but the frame was something that I was thinking about in this background way, actually, before I really even started the project, because one of my sort of research areas is food studies. And, um, you know, way back when I, when I was a grad student writing a dissertation where I was I was writing a chapter about nineteenth um, century vegetarianism, and I started researching the nineteenth century food reformer Sylvester Graham, the, the guy that the Graham cracker is named after. Um, and I, oh my gosh, I he wrote this like twelve hundred page science of human life, which is mostly, you know, now disproven. Like it's just like pages of like theories of digestion before people understand digestion. I think I might be like the only person alive who's read all of it. But I mean, there, there were really like fascinating things in there. And, and one of them that really jumped out to me is someone who's, you know, been interested in kind of contemporary food reform writing and, and media was that he's already complaining in the 1830s about all of these problems of industrial food that according to pretty much all contemporary U.S. food reformers, only, you know, begin supposedly in the wake of World War II or according to a few people, maybe like around 1900. But then I'm reading this book and here's Sylvester Graham in like the 1830s complaining that, you know, cows are not being grass fed, they're being confined in stalls and they're fed with grain. Um, this is making them sick. They're being slaughtered when they're sick. They're being fed to an unsuspecting public who doesn't realize that their diet is making them sick. Um, or he's writing about all these additives, um, you know, like bread and cheese and other um, and other products have uh, have all these things being added to them to make them look more appealing. So the cell 
sell better, um, but then they're they're making consumers sick. So it's just like all these classic problems of industrial food are there in the 1830s, right? Um, hmm. And they're not supposed to be according to sort of all of the contemporary food sustainability conversation. Yeah, it, it's usually more like a, a 20th century, uh, you know, I, we think that that really starts with um, uh, agribusiness and, and factory farming. So 20th century phenomenon, but so tracing it back to early 19th century is fascinating. Yeah. And I mean, and so because this is something that was already just an interest, I started doing all of this research that had nothing to do with my dissertation or anything I was working hmm. on, where I just started doing this archival research on um, sort of uh, animal agriculture and animal slaughter in the 19th century. And I, you know, I found like dairy farmers experimenting with mechanization um, of dairies, like, uh, you know, machines for milking cows in the 1820s. As I pushed back further there, you know, it was like colonial New England farmers are raising beef for a transatlantic meat market. Um, and so just, it, just this notion that, you know, American farmers were, were somehow balancing these like environmental and human health and ethical considerations perfectly in these earlier periods, you know, that they weren't driven by a desire to, to maximize their, their animal capital. It just does not hold up, right, to, to scrutiny. So for just kind of years, I was revolving this, this sense in the back of my mind. I thought I would write something separate about it that, you know, like... If we want a better food system, you know, we can't go back to the 19th century or the 18th century or whatever. Um, those earlier practices were, you know, totally continuous with our current food system, right? Our current food system is a is a culmination, not a divergence from what came before. So for me, it was like from there that I started thinking a lot about kind of how pastoral fantasies turn out to be this. Um, right, the idea that what we the 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 thing that we need is sort of waiting for us. Often in the 19th century is the is the thing you hear. Um, it, it, they turn out to be this kind of useful litmus test by which to judge environmental paradigms. Right, so so to the extent that a paradigm is constricted by pastoralism, I came to feel like it just can't be future oriented or you know transformative in any real way. Like in, instead, it's just going to contribute to the perpetuation of the status quo. That is so fascinating. And also, it's really interesting to see that already these things that we think are contemporary issues were sensed as issues and therefore came along with their, you know, um, uh, antidotes, right, uh, kind of baked in the, the, the problem. So that's really, really cool. I have a question about, you know, your use of, of, of literature in the book. The authors that you invoke are not necessarily the most obvious candidates for thinking about the environment. And I mean that as a compliment, right? It's a, a <laughs> more surprising, right? Less the ones that might we might expect. And and we've already talked about uh, Whitman. And I, I here want to think a little bit more about this truly amazing chapter on Whitman, where you read his uh, insatiable and famously insatiable appetite as a kind of perverse celebration of endless consumption that, uh, you know, justifies itself, you know, is made sustainable, you could say, by portraying nature as a site of infinite renewal. So in a way, you know, Whitman gives us a uh, license to consume without end. Uh, and, and your project basically looks back at, at some of the most celebrated, uh, but also some, you know, less uh, celebrated and more obscure 19th century texts. Uh, and reevaluates them in light of uh, our current environmental crises. So I was wondering, like, how difficult was it for you to read our cherished authors, you know, like Melville and Whitman, 
against the dominant grain uh, of celebration and to show precisely that they are part of the problem, so to speak. And, and, and this is not a reductive, you know, reading in any way. It's more to try to inscribe them in a kind of like a larger logic. So, so I guess I'm asking because I wonder whether a part of you resisted these readings, uh, because I'm guessing that, you know, trained as an Americanist as you were, you were also, you had attachments to, to these texts. This is such a great question. I mean, I think that things really opened up when I hit the point in the project where I was kind of reading for and thinking about paradigms. Like it, that made me open to these counterintuitive or, or uncomfortable readings of particular figures or texts. The end result is definitely that there are arguments in the book that I felt kind of personally provoked or, or, or goaded by, um, which I loved actually. Like I loved feeling like writing myself into places where I felt provoked. Um, and, and my last chapter is actually for me that the, the chapter I felt most kind of unsettled by the, the radical pet keeping chapter, interestingly, but I, I mean, I think the thing that I worried about a little bit more was whether the kind of widespread veneration that's felt for some of these figures, and, and Whitman is the perfect example, um, might prevent readers from being open to my arguments, right? Uh, I worried a lot. I mean, I really agonized over the having the Whitman chapter come first. The The book is organized in this dialogic way. So in the end, I, I, I couldn't make a different choice. I had to have the Whitman chapter come first. But I I just I kept picturing in my mind someone throwing the book down in disgust because that's not how they want to read Whitman. Like they don't want to they want to see Whitman that way. Um, but it also works the other way. Right. I mean, the people love to hate Thoreau. Right. He's one of the figures in my joyful frugality chapter. Right. And people love to hate his anti-consumerism. They love to kind of like, you know, rage at um, his hypocrisy. And he, he's just like such an enraging killjoy for so many people. Right. So that so to have him be a figure in, um, in one of the chapters of the counterintuitive alternative paradigms um, was also felt dicey. So, so it's the figures, but then it's actually also the paradigms. Like who wants to hear that there's something wrong with preservation as an environmental ethic? I mean, I, there was an, um, an early reader of, of my preservation chapter who was really upset by the argument actually. Um, and I, I, I went him over eventually, but, um, but yeah, it's, it's, it's a thing um, to unravel a little bit some of these cherished figures and ideals. At the at the end of the day, like I hope I succeed in in recasting the texts and the and the paradigms and like locating them more solidly within the kind of cultural and environmental history that like opens them up in the way that I'm that I'm arguing. But actually, is this something that you worried about? And and I mean, did you feel like your objects were already sort of sufficiently compromised, or did or did you worry about this? Oh, <laughs> uh, that's a, a good question. I I don't know that I worried that much because I don't think I, I have, I think a little bit less this attachment. But interestingly, the thing that I have the most pushback against is Moby Dick. I think because it really is this, you know, you have so many people who, you know, want to say that the particular reading I've just offered before, which I always say, you know, is just one of the possible lines, you know, along which I think we could read Moby Dick as tracing, you know, this particular transformation while also paying attention to other things. Because I say there is this story of biocapitalism in Moby Dick, it, it, it feels as if the whole book is is indicted in that particular reading. And, and I get a lot of uh, concerned eyebrows that I'm being a little reductive in my reading. Or at least that's how I'm interpreting this. So maybe I'm just also internalizing, 
you know, people's expectations. I don't think I have as, I think, counterintuitive statements as, as yours, which is, again, what, what is so powerful and, and is what's really so interesting is to open up, you know, uh, one particular text and, and really try to read it alongside a, you know, uh, a different, you know, history or history that might have come into more salience today, right? Uh, when thinking environmentally and about the environment is not a thing of today, but we look at things quite differently, right? So yeah, I, I, I think I might have been a little less exposed to that type of, of reaction. But speaking of that, I'm also interested in how you structure your book, because you also think about very much this kind of uh, retrospective gaze, right? This re-evaluation of certain uh, authors and certain texts. As I was saying earlier, you know, very attentive to to problems and also problematic solutions. But you're also, uh, and that's uh, really so fascinating, pairing every, you know, problem with, you know, a form of alternative, a uh, what you call transformative solutions, right? So uh, models for mitigating unrestricted consumerism for envisioning, you know, different ways of living and inhabiting the world uh, in your uh, radical pet keeping chapter, fostering, you know, different uh, economies of relations between humans and non-humans. And, and you find some of these models in contemporary literature, and you've already mentioned Lucille Clifton, but you also have A.S. Byatt and, and others there, Louis Erdrich. But you also go back in time. And, and so you mentioned Thoreau, you also have Dickinson and Hannah Kraft. So for you, um, it's not that people didn't know in the 19th century and that were just belatedly kind of awakened to uh, issues that we just couldn't see before. And and I find that also extremely powerful, even though you also show that these are minoritarian sites of possibility, right? You're also showing that they were uh, marginalized was finding these kind of non-dominant models uh, a way for you to call the bluff on a certain narrative of, of the Anthropocene, you know, like, uh, uh, oh, we couldn't know, but now we, we are awakened to what we've done and we're trying to, to fix it. Um, how did you think of, of that, the way in which you make, you know, texts of um, the 19th century resonate with contemporary texts? Yeah, I love this question. I, I'm I'm teaching a class right now that I often teach on on literatures of the Anthropocene, and I I love those moments when students go, "Oh wait, they did know, right?" Like, like it's, <laughs> it's I think I think it's so tempting, um, and yet it's such a kind of like damaging, disproving idea, disproven idea that if, that if we know better, we'll do better, right? Like, oh, they just didn't know, right? Um, and so of course, one you know one way around that is to go back and look and say like, oh. They did know, and and they did it anyway, right? Also, maybe more importantly, there were other voices and other choices and other ways of living that were imagined and enacted even at the moment of the emergence of you know these problems and and paradigms that we're still living with, right? Um, and and that's important in terms of just like provoking our imagination and provoking our sense of the possible, right? Something I was thinking about a lot as I was working on the book was just that the the timeline that we're operating on is so short now, right? I mean, just like 10 years maybe <laughs> to turn the ship mm-hmm. around, you know? In some ways, the, the biggest objection to paradigms like sustainability is just that the timeline doesn't work. I mean, the 
sustainability is a paradigm in, in my argument, like never worked, right? It was, mm-hmm. it was never going to work. Um, but, but it's all about this idea that you can sort of incrementally tinker with aspects of capitalism and so on. And like, somehow we'll get there. Right. But like, mm-hmm. if we've got eight or 10 years, that timeline like, just doesn't work. So I had this, this strong sense of like, like change is scary, right? Transformation is scary. How do we figure out how to embrace that and how to how to do so in a way where we don't just get stuck in new kind of um, binding static um, paradigms, right, that that are not helpful. And so that's where I was thinking about um, what I what I called like meantime environmental ethics, the idea that that there might be these paradigms that are not for all times and all places, but that that could help move mainstream U.S. environmental culture like forward in the here and now, right, could could provoke us out of our sort of status quo and make something else possible. And then when we need new paradigms, you know, we, we maybe find new paradigms. So that was where the dialogic structure kind of came in like this. I had the sense that I want, I want to not just say like, this doesn't work, but I want to say, here's another approach to the same problem that if not perfect, right? I mean, neither of my alternatives are um, ever suggested to be like ideal or perfect, but they I'm arguing that they're not compromised beyond utility in the in the way that the the one that they're paired with is, um, and they're these other paradigms are more likely to promote sort of like pleasure and justice and flourishing multi species communities, right? The, the, the mm-hmm. stuff that we want, um, and even just at the level of the chapter, kind of also having this dialogic structure, right? Each chapter has kind of at least two figures. Um, so you know, as you said, it's like Walt Whitman and Lucille Clifton are talking to each other, and George Catlin and Louise Erdrich are talking to each other and Hannah Crafts and Harriet Wilson are talking to each other. Um, and, and hopefully, you know, all of this is like producing that unsettling and dislodging of the status quo that I was after. Also how you end the book, right? In your coda, you're interested in also uh, just the same way. I think that you're uh, rejecting the narrative according to which sustainability used to be good or could be good but you know it's been co-opted so we need to get it back and you're like you know saying like no there's something that's deeply troubling because it has this profound allegiance to continuity as you say and and therefore it's always going to be a foreclosure of of change or or deep radical transformation and you're you are interested in reclaiming a form of uh of deeper more radical transformation uh, which uh, you also call utopia, right, at the end. So there is very much this uh, desire to work from the impossible or what seems to be impossible, what seems to be like uh, unrealistic in a way. So I really I really do love the way in which you're working as almost, a, sorry, a contrarian. I'm going to call you a contrarian, but someone who's like, <laughs> yeah, your investment is all messed up. Let's, uh, let's, let's <laughs> you know, rethink uh, all these things. So. Um, I was curious, do you have yourself a favorite passage in your own uh, book or a moment that for you was also particularly surprising as you were writing? I think the, the I don't know that favorite would be exactly the right way to characterize it, but the, the last chapter, the Harriet Wilson and Hannah Crafts chapter made me really uncomfortable. The, the, the argument that pet keeping might be <laughs> even radical pet keeping might be a kind of environmental paradigm for for thinking about multi-species community in the Anthropocene makes me really uncomfortable. And yet I felt 
um, convinced by it. I felt that there was like something there. Obviously I did. It's, it's my last chapter, <laughs> but, um, and so, so, I mean, I think that argument, I, I, I think there too, I mean, just the, not just vitality, but the like essential to me, um, place of black feminism in my sense of environmental thought, the environmental humanities, um, is also kind of another reason that that chapter was really interesting for me. It was just a, um, it was, it was both kind of like my conclusion was for me at least a little bit distressing, um, in terms of conservation dependent species and all of that stuff. But the, but, but that piece of the chapter felt really right. But then the, the coda, it's funny what you said about like where a book ends, it must always feel like you wished you had more time. I wished I'd had more time to sort of explore mm-hmm. the, the utopianism that I, that I come to in the coda. And, and, you know, that may well be my next project, but I think. Oh, that was, was my next question. <laughs> so that's perfect. Yeah. Well, I mean, I was just going to say that I, I was, um, I really liked thinking about, and it's another thing that I just had been revolving for years, the, the Langston Hughes poem, Let America Be America Again. Um, and that's part of the coda and just the the kind of temporality um, that, that that poem articulates um, and the way that that it's kind of about looking back in order to in order to disrupt the status quo in the present so that something different and um, more equitable and and radical can be built. I mean, I think that really like encapsulates where the book lands. Nice. So, yeah, I, I really love this un- unwavering insistence that you have on. Uh, thinking together social and racial justice with uh, environmental justice um, or environmental justice having to be in thinkable even without uh, social, racial, gender gender justice. So do you already have a next project? I know this is always a tricky question. So uh, (laughs) can you tell us more about where you think you're going to go after uh, sustainability? I mean, I think I want to keep thinking about this critical utopianism that the that the book ends with, which is a sort of not utopia as a kind of like blueprint um, for for the future, but um, as uh, an energy or a, or a force or a really a critical orientation that is disruptive of the status quo. Um, and so there's there's a an essay that I recently finished um, for an edited collection that's about Thoreau again, <laughs> and, hmm. and 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 this kind of um, sort of utopian experimentation. But it, it also looks at B. F. Skinner's Walden too, which deeply weird, um, deeply weird, hmm. deeply weird novel. Um, and and sort of you know the, thinking about utopianism in that way. I, I know I want to think more about um, Octavia Butler's Parable of the Sower. I mean, I think. If there are these sort of texts that um, that that launch a next project, like that's really it's just a book I've been teaching since I started teaching, and the my relationship to it has changed so much over the years, and I find myself um, just thinking about it more and more lately, and it's it's just really powerful attempts to um, to reckon with change and to um, to sort of center um, our relationship with change. So that's something I'm thinking about a lot. Um, and, I'm, and I'm also working on something about Emerson and, and climate grief. Um, I don't know what's where. Where are you going next? I mean, do you feel like um, you you have a next project that is um, that is really growing out of capture, or do you see yourself moving in a in a new direction? I think I have. It's starting to have a better idea where I want to go after. And the more I think about it, the more I see that it's related to 
capture. But uh, in the meantime, I also wrote something on Thoreau. And I think we want to apologize to everyone (laughs) who's listening for piling on. But uh, that has to do with more thinking about the environment and plants. And so I keep thinking, you know, in in terms of, of biopolitics, but here I'm more interested in whether plants uh, and the vegetable uh, have a place in biopolitical thought. And I essentially try to read Thoreau as uh, almost offering a counterpoint to uh, Foucault's pastoral power with something like pasture power, like thinking about plants, thinking about the the milieu on which, you know, the, the flock to use, you know, Foucault's notion of, of, of pastoral power, the flock grazes, you know, you need this pasture. And, and Foucault does not really think so much about the background for pastoral power. So I've been thinking about that and therefore a lot about seeds. Uh, so you're thinking about Octavia Butler's Parable of the Sower yeah. also makes me think about that. And I can imagine that your relationship to it changes when um, California's on fire so regularly. Right. And... Although in fairness, it was even when I first started teaching it. <laughs> California's kind of yeah. always on fire. True, true, true. It just seems like more and more dire. Yeah. So, yeah, next is going to, I think, try to think about really contemporary sites of archiving for after the apocalypse. And I'm I'm interested in in these kind of transnational global projects like the the Seed Vault, which is also sometimes called uh, the Doomsday Vault that's in Norway, where all the seeds of the world are kind of held, you know, categorized and uh, preserved you know, uh, just for the potential moment in the future when they might be of use. And and I find that really interesting because these are kind of um, modern arcs for a future that we might not be a part of. And I think that there's all sorts of weird, interesting things going on there. Um, transnational collaborations, but also biopolitical decisions, what to keep, what not to keep, how to, you know, count certain things. So I want to do something around these new projects because there's uh, a few out there um, that keep certain things i want to say maybe in captivity or in a in a in a form of uh, stasis you know uh, while also it being the living that is being preserved right so it's this kind of like antithesis that i think is also at the center of capture it's how to preserve something you know alive and and without killing it fully without and, and and there is an interesting tension that I will want to explore I think in my next uh, larger project wow I cannot wait to read that that sounds fantastic <laughs> wait very very nice well the same let's uh, have another podcast chat uh, as soon as these are are done <laughs> absolutely well uh, well thank you so much for um for this fascinating conversation and um and and for your book Thank you so much, Michelle, and same. Uh, thank you so much for everything, the conversation and the book. For more information about Capture, including how to read it for free online, visit z.umn.edu forward slash capture book.